Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today we're going to be talking about the Verenig Ostindische Kompanie, which is Dutch for the United East India Company, uh, also known as the Dutch East India Company, often written in history books by its uh, acronym, like the acronym for its Dutch name, VOC. Um, this company was hugely influential in the history of not just the Netherlands and Europe as a whole, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, it, it, it's, it was hugely important in the development of European kind of multinational, international trade networks um, and had a central role in the age of discovery, the age of colonization. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of who the Dutch were in this period, that is to say, uh, we're going to be talking mostly about the 17th century, which is often referred to as the golden age of the Dutch Republic. Um, the, the, the Dutch in the 1600s were a really big deal, <laughs> basically. That's, that's what you need to know. Uh, and we're going to be talking about kind of how this company got started, what it was like, where they were established, kind of how they did business and stuff like that. And, uh, and I hope you find it interesting, honestly, because I find it fascinating. The trade expansion coming out of Europe, the voyages of discovery, of exploration, were led by the Portuguese in the 15th century and expanded under the Spanish in the late 15th century, early 16th century. Um, they really kind of led the charge of taking the, this, these new sailing ships, this new transatlantic technology that had been built into the, the newest models of ships, uh, and leaving Europe uh, to look for trade routes to the east, mostly. Some of the push behind this uh, was the search for new souls for the church or, or uh, you know, to expand the personal domains of these kings. But the main reason was that in 1453, the city of Constantinople in the east, the last remaining bastion of the Byzantine Empire, fell to the Ottoman Turks. And now the Ottoman Turks, in controlling that whole region, controlled the trade routes to the east, uh, and it was just too hard and too expensive. So. A lot of European nobles and kings were getting antsy uh, to find a new route to the east. Um, so what does this have to do with the Dutch? Up until the early 1600s, the lands that uh, later comprised the Netherlands were under the control of the kings of Spain. And these Dutch provinces, there were six in total, the two biggest ones were Holland and Zeeland, or Zeeland. They fought a war of independence against the kings of Spain, so that by 1609, it was pretty clear that they were going to win. Uh, the rebellion was, was actually very successful. Uh, it would take a few more years of truce and, and kind of negotiation and stuff before they got their own country. But when they did, they exploded onto the world scene as a new trading power. Uh, so this would be the early to mid 1600s, i.e. 17th century. At this point, the British Empire, as it would later be known, didn't really exist yet. Like, it, it, they weren't a big deal yet. Um, and France had its own problems. Um, France was still kind of trying to set up colonies in what is now Canada. Um, Spain and Portugal already had these vast, vast trading empires all over the place. Uh, they had colonized 
a number of Atlantic islands like uh, the Azores, uh, the Canary Islands, Madeira, the Cap Verde Islands. Um, Spain had explored places like the Caribbean and Mexico. Portugal had sailed around Africa by this point and was already trading in the Far East. So when the Dutch came onto the scene, they already had some pretty uh, stiff competition. But we're going to see kind of some of the things that contributed to their success uh, as a new trading power. And uh, maybe some, we're going to look at some of the lands that they worked their, their ways into. Um, and we're going to talk about the focus of this episode. That is the VOC, which is just fascinating because I've heard more than one uh, historian kind of describe it as the world's first multinational corporation. So it's just interesting stuff. One of the reasons why the Dutch were successful in their wars of independence from the Spanish crown is because they were highly organized and motivated, but also Spain at this time period, so again, this would be the late, late 16th century, early 17th century, um, they had their own problems elsewhere. So they now had this vast colonial uh, empire in the New World, and so that was taking up a lot of resources to develop. They had to protect their treasure fleets coming back from the New World. Um, they were competing with Portugal, uh, standing physically in between uh, the Netherlands and Spain was France, uh, you know, one of the most powerful nations in Europe. Uh, and in addition to this, um, Spain was, they, they were just recovering from a huge naval defeat in an event called the Spanish Armada which had taken place uh, just a few decades earlier in 1588, where they lost this huge naval battle against the English. So that's where we are, kind of situate your head in the, the early 1600s with the rise of this new Dutch power. Uh, six provinces, the biggest ones among them were Holland and Zeeland or Zeeland. And to this day, a lot of people still refer to the Netherlands as Holland, and that's how important that province was in the whole of the Netherlands. Um, just like a little piece of trivia, the reason why it's called Netherlands is because nether means low, you know, like your nether regions or whatever. But Netherlands, it's because the, the sea level in that area of Europe is so low that it's just generally called the Netherlands. But uh, I definitely don't blame people for calling that country Holland because for a long time, they're kind of used interchangeably. So when they achieved independence, uh, they had a small, efficient, um, dedicated government. And a lot of their success, I'm taking this from Empires, Europe and Globalization by Rodzins, uh, 1492 to 1788. Um, it was the urban merchants who controlled the Dutch Republican government. And that's also notable because they uh, actually did not have like a king, like they had a noble class, but it was the Dutch Republic. Quote, the confederated governments of Holland and Zeeland were a commercial oligarchy. They used political power to support and expand trade and industry instead of using trade and industry to sustain political power as their opposing and rival aristocratic monarchies did. So that's very interesting, uh, end quote, by the way. Uh, the word oligarchy, uh, typically in political science and stuff, it just means the rule uh, by an elite few. So in this case, 
Uh, it would be the, the merchant class, like people with a lot of money. The state was very, very active in promoting this new kind of development of Dutch power and supporting of the commercial class and all of these commercial ventures. Uh, state intervention was decisive in building uh, Dutch wealth and the Dutch empire. So let's talk about uh, how the VOC got started and kind of a little bit about their early years. The very, very beginning of the 17th century, so the early 1600s, there were a bunch of little trading companies getting started in the Netherlands, kind of taking advantage of this new independence, this new freedom. Uh, eventually, they joined together to form the VOC in 1602. So again, according to George Rodson's in the book Empires, Europe and Globalization, 1492 to 1788, quote, the VOC government charter gave it a complete monopoly on Asian trade, the authority to wage war in self-defense, build fortifications, operate combat fleets, and conduct its own diplomacy with Asian states and authorities. It was both an instrument of Dutch trade and foreign policy, of commerce and war, and was controlled by a tight oligarchy of elite merchants who also ran Dutch affairs generally. In practice, the VOC was both a capitalist and a state authority, though in theory it was entirely private and merely commercial with self-defense capabilities." End quote. How crazy is that? That would be the modern equivalent of Walmart, or even better, Amazon, expanding out of the United States and having the power and authority to set up its own outposts all over the world and have sovereign control to pass its own laws in the lands around its outposts. They can have their own warships, their own soldiers, like their own private armies. They're authorized to conduct negotiations with foreign states. Um, it's just like insane the amount of power and authority was given to this this uh, East India Company by the Dutch government. Um, they first set out, there were three fleets that left the Netherlands to kind of explore the East. Now, by this time, like I said, uh, the New World to the West, you had a lot of Spanish uh, dominions there and, and colonies and stuff like that. The Portuguese, a lot of these Atlantic islands had been seized and were um, actively being colonized by the Spanish and Portuguese. The Portuguese had made it around Africa and by this point uh, had outposts uh, in places like India and, and the Spice Islands and stuff like that. So the Dutch were running into kind of established uh, competition. But these three fleets, the first one got to India in 1604, but it, it was only a modest success. Um, then they sent the second fleet in 1606 and this one was, they got into a fight uh, off the island of Malacca, and in the same year, the third fleet was driven out of the waters around Indonesia by a Spanish battle fleet that was in the area. A few years later, in 1609, two ships from the East India Company actually got to a place called Hirado in Japan. And in the next year, they, they set up an outpost, like a, a trading outpost, a factory, with Japanese permission. Uh, the Japanese at this point were extremely suspicious of, of outsiders and Europeans, and you kind of had to get special permission to, to even trade or set up anything on the Japanese islands. 
Um, this was important because at this point, uh, silver, well, I mean, this is still true. Silver was a huge kind of com uh, commodity in the world economy. A lot of uh, kings and emperors and stuff uh, preferred to trade in gold and silver, uh, especially the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese market was huge for silver. And ever since the 1500s, which is called the, the Siglo de Oro in Spanish history, the century of gold, all of this cheap silver was flowing from the New World to Spain. And a lot of uh, rival kingdoms were kind of envious of this. So by the VOC making it to Japan, well, as it turns out, Japan also had its own silver mines. And yes, the, their silver was a little harder to get, and it wasn't maybe in such great quantities, and maybe it wasn't as cheap. But in this time period, it was the only credible alternative to the vast hordes of Spanish silver coming from the New World, uh, which could, could, could then be used, you know, to boost European economies or to trade with the Chinese. Um, in the, the years kind of following this establishment of an outpost, the Dutch became really, really interested in spices. And at this point, spices were incredibly expensive, incredibly valuable. And one of the reasons for this was because they came from a specific kind of island chain um, in the Pacific. And, you know, there was just such a monopoly there. Uh, they weren't grown anywhere else at this point, and everybody was fighting over them. The English and the French kind of weren't into the spice game yet, but definitely the Portuguese, the Spanish, and the Dutch were competing in the 1600s over this. Um, one of the main... I, I believe the main competitor to the Dutch in the Spice Islands was actually the Portuguese. And we're going to talk now a little bit kind of about the, the conflict over these spices and, and what spices are we talking about and where did they come from? What the Dutch wanted were the islands of Java and the Molucca Island group, which is uh, north and east of Java. And they were successful by 1619, uh, after a bunch of conflicts and wars and, and kind of naval skirmishes, they had successfully established a base in western Java called Batavia. The Molucca Island group was uh, important because it was the original source of all of the cloves, nutmeg, and mace in the world. This was before, way before, some of these plants had been smuggled out and you could start to grow spices elsewhere. Their main competitors, like I said, were the Spanish and the Portuguese. The Portuguese operating out of a place called Timor, and the Spanish mostly operating out of Manila in the Philippines, which uh, they were already kind of firmly established there. The VOC was successful um, in their goal of creating a near monopoly of these spices. And man, did, did they get powerful, did they expand. So again, this is from uh, Rodson's Empires. Quote, by 1623, the VOC in Asia was already permanently ensconced. It operated 90 ships, had 2,000 European soldiers, exclusive of mariners and Asian auxiliaries, 20 forts and four big fortresses at Batavia, Banda, Amboina, and Ternate. It might be Ternate, I'm not sure. Valued at 6 million guilders. 
and they continue to ex to expand. Uh, if we, I'm going to continue with this quote a little bit later. In 1656, they took Colombo after a long effort, thus driving Portuguese influence largely out of the important cinnamon island of Ceylon, or Ceylon, which is today uh, Sri Lanka. Also, in 1638, the Japanese government banned all further trade with the Portuguese, and by 1641, the only European traders allowed became the Dutch at Dishima, where they remain Japan's sole contact with the rest of the world for the next 212 years, end quote. So we see the Dutch have made it to the Spice Islands, but they just kept going. They kept expanding. They got into Sri Lanka. Uh, they established themselves as kind of the only trading partner with Japan, uh, which was famously kind of isolationist uh, during this period. And in doing so, they secured this source of uh, Japanese silver. This base that the uh, VOC had in Japan was a big deal because in this time period and for a long time period after, the Chinese emperor only accepted payment for Chinese goods in silver. So the Dutch, by having this source in Japan, they didn't have to go through the Spanish to get a lot of this New World silver. So they could just hop you know, over from Japan to China and trade directly for these Chinese goods. And the big three were silk, porcelain, and tea. And all of these were worth a ton of money. And the Dutch just made a ton of money off this. They pretty much reached their peak um, from the 1620s to the 1660s. And according to Rodzins, by in this time period, the Dutch Golden Age, the Netherlands was the world's leading maritime power and Europe's wealthiest country. Uh, but by the 1680s, you started to see um, the renewed kind of rise of France and, and England was getting onto the world scene, but definitely for 40, 50 years, which is uh, notable, especially when you consider that they had just achieved independence. Uh, like you, you would think that after, uh, you know, rebelling against the Spanish crown, wars cost money, and then it takes time to like set up a government, develop a national identity. No, like they immediately just started hopping in their boats and sailing all over the world. Um, in a boat called the Flout, uh, it's spelled F-L-U-Y-T, and this was key to the Dutch um, kind of expansion, the development of their trade networks. And I want to talk about the Flout a little bit right now, because compared to other ships of the period, notably Carracks, Caravels, and Galleons, the Flout was special. Um, it was slower than a lot of these ships, but it was more agile. Uh, you could have a smaller crew and more cargo. And they were fast to build and cheap to build. And they really were the workhorse of the Dutch trade fleet. Um, the Netherlands, they cranked out a huge number of these ships. Um, and they weren't even really that big either. Um, generally speaking, they were about 80 feet long. Uh, and just for comparison, you know, if I throw that number at you, oh, 80 feet. Uh, I looked up the length of a standard yellow school bus and it said 35 feet. So basically, you put two yellow school buses 
end to end. And that's the length of one of these Dutch trade ships, uh, which is not really big. Uh, when you consider that, you know, this type of ship had to be able to sail from Europe to Japan. Like, how crazy is that? Um, they generally had a crew of 35 men, 35, 40, something like that. So yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Dutch flout because I, I really think you can't really have a conversation about the VOC or the Dutch Golden Age or Dutch exploration or anything like that without talking about this key ship. And it was a ship that, that only they had, like it was distinctly a Dutch design, Dutch technology. Um, one of the reasons why they could crank them out faster is because they had experienced shipbuilders, but they would also use uh, oftentimes like wind and, and water powered saws, stuff like that, instead of relying on, on muscle power to cut a lot of the lengths of wood and stuff that they needed. Uh, the Netherlands itself is not famous for its forests, so they actually had to import a lot of the lumber for their ships, mostly from the Baltic region. So uh, places like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, maybe some trees from Finland and Sweden, stuff like that. So that's just my two cents about the Dutch flout. In case you're wondering, there was a Dutch West India company uh, that existed. Generally speaking, it wasn't as successful as the East India Company, but they were responsible for setting up a lot of little colonies and outposts in the Caribbean and South America. One of the key differences was they weren't concerned with goods like uh, porcelain, tea, silk, silver, spices. Their big thing was sugar. And sugar had already been kind of cultivated by the Portuguese on some of these Atlantic islands, and it had been introduced to places like the Caribbean and Brazil by the Spanish and the Portuguese already. So the Dutch with the West India Company, hey, well, they want to get into the sugar game. So they did. And the one of the reasons why uh, sugar was so important is because Previously, it was a luxury, but now the European appetite for it was insatiable. Uh, European kind of cuisine was changing, their eating habits were changing. Sugar was an incredibly um, rich source of calories, uh, which allowed people to kind of work harder and work longer, stuff like that. Another key difference is the VOC in the East Typically, what they did was negotiate with local local rulers from their outposts, their, their trading posts, and kind of trade with them. Um, but the West India Company, with their sugar colonies, definitely relied a lot more on the importation and use of slaves from Africa. Um, sugar cultivation, sugar processing is incredibly labor-intensive. So the Dutch got really involved into the slave trade, um, taking slaves from Africa, uh, buying them off of local African uh, leaders and then bringing them over to the New World and kind of using them in their sugar colonies. In fact, um, the first slaves that were brought to the United States of America, like what later became the United States, were brought over by the Dutch. In 1619, Dutch slave traders sold the first 20 Africans to the struggling English colonists of Virginia for their newly discovered tobacco culture. So here it wasn't for sugar, it was for tobacco. Um, but we kind of see, and again, that was from uh, Rodson's. 
eventually, eventually there would be a new kind of source of sugar that could be grown in Europe, but this was a long, long way off. Um, this was the sugar beet. So by the 19th century, people had discovered how to get sugar out of the sugar beets. And you could do this in a temperate climate like Europe. You didn't have to grow these vast sugarcane fields uh, in these tropical climates um, like in the Caribbean, which initially was, was very hard on the Europeans. Like they were not used to the climate. There were problems with, you know, malaria, especially stuff like that. But uh, I just wanted to say a word or two about the West India Company, which, you know, don't get it confused with the East India Company. Like they were two different companies doing two different things. Um, and I just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of the differences between the two. So what happened to the Dutch Golden Age and the uh, India companies, the East India Company, the West India Company? Well, they continued, but by the second half of the 17th century, uh, rival powers like England and France were catching up to the Dutch. The Portuguese and Spanish were still powerful, and there was a series of Anglo-Dutch wars. And so, for example, the city of New York was originally the city of New Amsterdam. It was a Dutch colony. But they lost it in 1664 after fighting a war with the English. Um, it's just that Dutch methods, Dutch technology, uh, Dutch kind of trading techniques and stuff were now being copied and adopted by rival powers who had larger populations, more resources, uh, you know, more powerful kings. So it's not necessarily that they messed up big and, and made a bunch of bad calls. It's just that like the rest of Europe kind of caught up to them. They would still be a, a powerful kind of trading nation well into like the 1700s and stuff like that. Uh, but definitely by the 1660s or so, their golden age was over. Despite this, um, the kind of opinion of this guy Rodzins is quote, from about 1600 to 1650, they also managed to build and operate the world's largest single merchant fleet, thus adding quantitative superiority to their qualitative edge. From these initiatives, they became per capita the richest Europeans for the entire 17th century and beyond." End quote. So they, they really were able to um, use the money that they were making off trading and reinvest it in their economy. Uh, when you look at the history of Spain and the Spanish kings in their Siglo de Oro, like their, their golden age, um, you start to see rapidly that a lot of this money that they were sucking out of the new world, they would squander it on pointless wars and stuff like that. Uh, it seems to me that the Dutch didn't do that. Like they, they really tried to reinvest in their country and strengthen their trading networks, uh, stuff like that. So that's kind of what happened to the Dutch and the Dutch East India Company. Um, sometimes you'll see, you know, their name pop up in historical epics or pirate movies or whatever. Um, so anyway, I hope you found that interesting. All right, well, that's gonna do it for us today. Uh, I hope that I was able to 
Maybe uh, show you a few things you had never known about the most powerful trading company of the 17th century, the VOC, the United East India Company. Uh, we also talked about the rise of the Dutch. I remember when I first, first learned about this, uh, I was kind of blown away because I remember, you know, when I was uh, much younger learning about colonial history, you hear about all the standard players like, you know, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the English, the French. And it was just very surprising to me, like, oh, the Dutch, especially when you look at the challenges that they had to go through to kind of establish themselves as a nation and, and achieve what they did. So in any case, this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.